The messenger, the message, and the community. So far, we've looked at the messenger. How do I become a valid messenger? And we've talked a bit about the message, and how do I explain a message that people will accept? Now we want to look at the community. This is important because we discovered that as we went out, people might reject the gospel because they rejected who we were as messengers. But we also discovered that once we got to share our gospel message, sometimes they rejected the gospel because they didn't really understand the gospel message. But even after we shared the gospel, we found out there were still people who were rejecting what we said because their next question was about community. Who are these people? What do I join? What does it look like? And they struggled with the whole concept of community. So we're going to look at community because for many Muslims, they will bring this question up very early on and when they realize that they are beginning to look at maybe accepting this message, the question of community suddenly becomes very, very important. So what do we mean by community? Who is part of community? Well, in the West, in English, when we say the word community, it means the people around about us that I need to live. It means there's a store down the street. It means there's a school there. It means there's a policeman uh, that looks after our neighborhood. There's a fire truck that's there. And this is our community. And we talk about community and neighbors. And we talk about community spirit, the people getting together in the community and keeping it clean or keeping it organized. When I was in the Middle East, I was very um, frustrated with the lack of what I thought was community spirit. Because I would see garbage on the ground. I think, why don't the people here just get to come out here and clean this up? It would take a couple hours. If everybody got out here, they could clean this all up and have a much nicer looking community. And I didn't understand how they saw and how they viewed community. Because in an Eastern mindset, community revolved around not your immediate neighbor, but it revolved around who is near to you, blood relations. And so your community was your father, your mother, your aunts, your uncles, and distant people in your tribe. And this was your community. And so they had a very different view of community than we do. One time I was in the land, uh, country of Yemen, and I visited the city of Sada. And Sada, up in northern Yemen, is a walled city. And I had an opportunity to walk around the wall of the city. It's still a wall. It was built out of packed mud, but it's, it's, I think the description would be two chariots wide, about all the way around, and you could walk around the walled city. And uh, parts of the wall were broken a little bit and needed repair, and parts of them were very good. And I asked, how do you look after this wall? Like, who, who, who built it, and, and who repairs it, and who looks after it? Oh, they said, this different people, different families have different sections of the wall that they are responsible for. And so as you walk along, they all know this section of the wall belongs to a certain family, and they are responsible. And so your honor is at stake to keep up and maintain the wall and uh, keep it up in good condition. And so for them... The city was made up of groups of families. This is a picture we have in Nehemiah when they're working on the wall. You have that same idea. Families worked on different sections of, uh, of the wall. So ancient cities had sections in them made up of family units. And they're often, we use the word in English, quarters. The Armenian quarter or the Jewish quarter or the whatever. Because it would refer to different sections of the city. In the city I worked in, in, uh, in Amman, Jordan, for a while when we were there, one section of the city was called the Maniyah, meaning the people from the town of Ma'an. Another one was, uh, was the, the Hejaz, Hejazin, or the people from the Hejaz, and their section. And so you, would, you could live in different sections of the city. It, it described the people who were there, or the majority of the people who lived there. So a city is actually a community of communities. It is a huge community, but it is made up of communities of families that operated together. So in their minds, their community was actually a community of communities. Very important concept, because when you come to Islam, you discover that Islam describes itself as a community of communities. 
And when it says that, it doesn't mean we are a community of uh, all kinds of communities and inside or these cities or these villages. It means we are a community of family units. And Islam was built with this understanding that Islam is the community, the glue that holds all of these family units together. And so when you become part of Islam, you are actually not just joining a great religion, but it is a full of all of these smaller communities that operate together. And so as people live in Muslim countries, they are part of a network, usually a family-based network, which is a community uh, that they belong to, and it's part of the wider community of Islam. The challenge is, when I come to look at my Christian faith, is Christianity a community of communities? Now, yes, it is, but we have a different meaning because we see a church as a community. But the people in that church are from different families and different tribes. It's full of individuals who have no attachment to one another. And so when I look at at, at a church, what makes up a church is very different from what makes up the people who meet at a mosque. Most mosques are attached to family units. But people can pray and worship in any mosque. And so I might see a friend and he said, oh, I was over at that mosque today and prayed there. But it doesn't mean that he's now going to attend that mosque or he's a member of that mosque. You don't have that concept. You're free to worship at any mosque but uh, because the community is not built around the mosque. The mosque serves the community, which are the families. And so there are many family mosques, but they serve the community. So the basis of their thinking was uh, family, not mosque. However, when we come to Christians, we want to gather people together into churches and we, we don't even think about it. We just assume that everyone from different families and different backgrounds and different tribes and so forth will all come together into one group called a church. And that's a community of faith. And yet we don't realize the challenge that is for Muslims to identify and understand how that community works. That it is even a viable community for them. So when a Western person speaks of Christianity, he has this idea of um, rules and, I mean, of, of community of a church. But when an Eastern person looks at it, he wants to know, what is this community? Who are these people? What governs them? What holds them together? And if, is, it, is it the sheikh? Who's the sheikh who controls this? Who are the, 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 the ummah, the, the people who control this community? And... Uh, and what are the rules and regulations? What are the forms? How does it work? What are the guidelines? What are the customs? And, and they're interested in our Christian community because it's so different from their community. And so they begin to look at our Christian community. Now, up to this point, let's consider that our, the person we're dealing with, they accept us as messengers. And so they, they're listening to us. We're talking and we're sharing ideas and we're listening from them and, uh, and they, uh, we accept they can validly speak about Islam and they realize we can validly speak about Christianity. We've accepted one another as messengers. And more than that, perhaps they have actually listened to our message and they've accepted that, okay, we have a valid message. We are saying things that actually speak to their community and to their worldview and to, their, to, their, to the situation of their life. So they're listening to us. But their next question always is, is this community that you're talking about a valid community for me? Can I actually join this group of people? Will they accept me? And should I become a part of it? What is it? How does it work? And community becomes very, very important up front. Now, I've discovered two things that happen when Muslims are coming to Christ. There's two things that can easily take place. The first one is they may assume that there is a wonderful community that exists there. That could be the first one. The second one is they may want to uh, explore and look at this community. But first of all, most, many, many of the converts that I've talked to, they just assumed that there's a wonderful Christian community waiting for them. Where do they get that idea from? How come they assume that there's this wonderful Christian community? Well, 
Part of that comes from their old community. They've lived in a community. They have uncles, they have brothers, they have sisters. They have a, they have a community that looks after themselves. They've, they, they don't know anything other than the community they've been part of. So they assume that that kind of community is there and it will continue. Perhaps they've been exposed to a missionary community. And they look at the Christians they know and they, they look after one another. It's a wonderful community. I mean, we have good Christian community. I mean, when I was um, busy, maybe my, my, somebody I knew was coming at the airport and I was busy, I could call one of my friends up and, and they would go. One of my coworkers would go to the airport. Or if something happened and I needed to take my wife or one of my kids to the airport, uh, to a hospital or something, maybe my son broke his arm, I could call quickly up one of my other coworkers and they would come over and look after the rest of the family while I went off to the hospital. We had community. When I wanted to buy something, I could talk with my fellow co-workers about what's the best car to buy or where should I rent a house. I had support. I had people I could talk to. And so they could see that I lived in a community. And so they could assume, okay, this is what Christian community is like. Maybe they'd read the book of Acts. Imagine a Muslim reading the book of Acts and coming across this community that looked after one another. People sold their extra belongings and they brought them and they distributed them to the people who were in need. And Muslims reading this go, wow, Christian community is exciting. This is good, you know. And they get all excited about it. And so when they approach the Christian faith, they assume, of course, there's a wonderful community that's there. And so they become Christians and then they begin to struggle with the issues of community because they assumed that they would be there and they're not. It's different. And it might be a very big duck down. Now the second thing that might happen is maybe the Muslim who is investigating the Christian faith, he might want to check out Christian community. Before he commits to following Christ, he wants to know what does this community look like? And, and uh, if it's not right, he may back off. As one person said once, how can I leave my present house if the new house isn't ready for me to move into? So he said, I want to know, is that house ready? Will, can I move into this community? Will it accept me? And are they there for me? And so th the other option is, before they accept Christ fully and follow him, they may understand the message. They may want to explore our community and to see what community is all about. Now, what are the basic elements that are needed for us to build a fully functioning biblical Christian community of believers? That's a question that all of us will have to struggle with. We want to have community, but what should it look like? What are the bases of it? How do we develop a community that a Muslim can come into and it's a good community? Because as I look around, I realize some of the churches we have are not ready for Muslims. When we were in the Middle East, many of the traditional Christians who had been Christians there for centuries, they were suspicious of any Muslims who came in. They would say, oh, they're here to steal our daughters, or they're just checking us out, or they're secret police, or whatever. So the Christians were quite resistant to accepting people from others. So is this a good community? Can you bring your Muslims into this community? Well, you can do it, but I believe it takes a lot of work in preparing the community for people from a Muslim background who are coming in. A lot of work needs to be done to merge those two together into a community. So if we are going to create a, um, a community, the question is, what are the elements we need to create that community? Or how do we help an existing community become more open and ready so that they are a true biblically-based community that new believers will fit into? And then the last question we must ask ourselves, and this is always an issue, no matter how we've built our community, how, the question is how do we help Muslims or Hindus or anyone to move from their old community into the new community? So community is an issue. Whether you make your community look like a very Western thing, whether it has liturgy in it, or whether it is, uh, is an open Western service with all the mics and everything else, or whether you build your community that has kind of looks like Islam and maybe more like a Jesus mosque or whatever, you still have built a new community. And there's still an issue of how do I leave this community and join the new community? So we have two questions here. One is, 
How do we identify the community? What should be the elements of that community? What does the Bible teach us about community? And the second question is, how do I move from one community into the other community? So there are many difficulties we're going to have to address. How closely does this new model that we build have to look like the models that exist today? If we make an absolutely new kind of community, and this is brand new, and we offer this to the new believers, and if it doesn't exist anywhere else in the world, how are those Christians going to feel part of the broader church of Christ? If they are terribly unique in what they do, so how will they relate to what is happening outside of that little area? What kind of support do they have from the rest of Christendom? Or um, if we view Christianity as a community of communities, and uh, how do the believers have a sense of belonging to other groups? We had a challenge, and I challenged one of our leaders in the Middle East on this once. I said, okay, you've got some groups of people here from Muslim background who are believers following Christ. There's just a few of them. And I know there are some in neighboring countries and and some in these other countries. How can we get them in touch with one another? Because they feel so isolated. They feel all alone, and they need to feel that they are part of a, a bigger picture that God is doing. And it's not just them. And so we began to exchange cassette tapes, testimonies, and stories between different countries so that these isolated believers could feel part of something bigger that God is doing. So if you build something that's very unique, how does it fit into the bigger picture of what God is doing? But if it's too Western, how does it fit? How do, The community becomes harder for people to, uh, to enter into. So we have this struggle of how do we build community? Should it be something familiar? Should it be something radically different? These are hard questions because sometimes you have people who are leaving Islam who say, I don't want Islam anymore. I'm tired of that. I'm looking for something different. And if you're offering them a model that looks too much like Islam, they will reject it because it seems to have all the old trappings on it of formal prayers and formal, and they want away from that. They want the freedom to pray and to come into God's presence and so forth. But if it looks too different, then it may be hard. So our approach is going to be, first of all, to examine the biblical principles of community and try to understand what the Bible says. And then we want to examine the steps that people take as they move from one community to another community. It's the general steps. And then we want to lastly look at our communities and talk about how can we help adjust them or create them to make them biblically based and the kinds of communities that Muslims will join. Before we talk too much about um, community, I want to talk about bonding. Bonding is, uh, is a word that we use in English. It, it comes from uh, the chemistry. And it talks about two uh, molecules that bond to each other. It's, it's what draws them together, glues things together. Community is built around bonding. They have to bond around something. All of us have bonding capabilities. We all like to be part of something. We we don't like to be all by ourselves. So all of us bond with things. We bond to all kinds of things. Maybe you bond to people. You say, here are the people that I bond with. Maybe you bond with an activity. Maybe you support a certain football team. And so you feel a bond with somebody else because of the activity. And uh, you find it, oh, Uh, You play golf, I play golf. And then there's an immediate bond because of that activity. Maybe it's an ideology that you have. And so you follow a certain teaching. You find out someone else follows that ideology. There's a bond. So if we are to build community, we need to provide things that people can bond with that will hold this community together. There has to be vision, goals, principles, friendships, something that holds them together. If it's all family then the bond is family and the bond is the elders who control the family and so forth. So community is built around bonding. But very often we don't have the, the uh, privilege of having a whole family and therefore and just keeping it all within one family. We have different people and so we must deal with bonding. And all of us have this bonding capability. But some people resist bonding. Why do you think that is? Probably because they've had little experience with bonding. 
And some of our culture, some people have just never bonded much. They've, they've, they've grown up isolated. And so they've gone to church, but they've never bonded with other people, never felt part of it. Maybe they've had negative bonding. They got close to somebody and they got hurt and a relationship got broken and so they don't want to bond with people. And they have fear of bonding. I talked to a friend, he's a friend of mine. He went through a difficult time in his life and he changed churches. And I asked him, why are you going to that church? And he said, well, frankly, it's a big church. There's over a thousand people. I sit in the balcony and the reason I go there is because nobody knows me. So he chose a church where he could go where he didn't have to bond because he didn't want to bond. He was struggling with bonding because of things that were happening in his life. So there are some people who resist bonding. And so they, bonding needs to be explained. The community needs to be explained. Very often we need to go and explain to a new Muslim uh, who's looking at our community, we need to take time to explain what Christian community is all about, what it looks like, because he may want to know this before he'll accept Christ. And so he needs to know about it. And, and maybe people need some experience at bonding uh, because it's, it's an act of, of the soul. It's an experience that, that, that we all have. And once it awakens within us, we, uh, we have this bond that we can enjoy bonding. So community is all about bonding with others and this desire to be with others. And it stems from this function that we have. And it never goes away. We want to be part with others. And we, we bond with everyone we meet in some fashion. And it's usually an expression of emotion. We have that emotional bond. I feel close to people. Now bonding can be two different kinds. There are two major bonds. And they are love and hate. We can bond with people because of the things that we like. And in family unit, there's love together. And in uh, other groups, maybe you bond because of a common thing you like. But the bond might also be in things that you hate. There are people who all hate Western uh, ideology and hate America, find a common bond with one another, but it's built around their hatred, not around their love for one another. But they can build a valid community built around bond. And so once this expression is made of uh, whatever it is, you can have this community develop, even if it's a community of hate or a community of love. Now, bonding happens at many different levels. And um, it may, uh, not all of us experience all of these levels. And we've gone through and just written down a few of the things that bonding, different levels. Maternal, you bond with your mother. Mothers bond with babies. Paternal, with the father, there may be bonding. Siblings bond. And so we experience a bond with brothers and sisters. And then there's extended family, aunts and uncles and other people. And then there's that ethnic group that we belong to, uh, the, wa the wider sense of I belong to this group of people, uh, and so forth. And then there's uh, maybe the local community. I bond with uh, the people who live around me. Maybe it's a national community, and I am very nationalistic and patriotic, and I have a bond at that level. Maybe it's an international community. Some people belong to the Rotary Club, and wherever they go, they feel a bond with, so, oh, you're with the Rotary Club, and you feel this bond with them. Maybe it's a spiritual community, and Islam offers a spiritual community. You feel the bond. If you're a Muslim, you feel the bond with other Muslims wherever you go. If you are a, a Christian, an evangelical Christian, you meet another one from another country, you immediately feel that bond with them because you are bonding to this community. Now, not everyone has experienced bonding at all of these levels. Now, in the East, very often we bond, they bond with mother and father and siblings and, and uh, your extended family and so forth, but they may not bond with the local community. They may not feel any bond with their neighbor who lives across the street who's from a different ethnic background because they don't feel that bond uh, because their, their bonding is all done within family units. Um, typical with many Muslims is they feel the family unit bonding. They have maybe a nationalistic bond, which is a new thing in the last uh, while, but the, as nationalism, Arab nationalism particularly, has risen up. And then they have this spiritual bond all around the world. Interestingly enough, in the West, many of us coming from the West are challenged when it comes to bonding. Many of our families, kids growing up in the West, they bond with their mothers, 
but not with their fathers. Fathers are absent in many, many homes. And so many people growing up, they don't have a father image in their family. They may bond with brothers and sisters, and then they may bond with their friends at school or their people that they know of at work. And that's the limit of their bonding. And so I say that we are bonding challenged. And the problem we have in the West is when we come to the church, we are trying to bring people together who have bonded with their mothers and with their siblings and with their people at work and so forth, but they don't have any deep bonding relationships with other people. And we as a church are trying to develop those bonds and they're not used to it and they've been hurt. They've been hurt in relationships. They've come from broken relationships. Their father has hurt them or their mother has hurt them or their boyfriends have hurt them or their series of spouses that they have have hurt them. And people carry all kinds of bonding hurts that they are struggling with. And so they may have very few bonds and they may resist bonding. So bonding is an important issue. And as we look at Christian community that we build, however we build it, we want to ask the question about bonding and how, what, are this, what holds this community together. You must keep that in mind. and so Because they're going to be from different tribes, different families, different backgrounds, and there has to be something strong that they hold to that bonds them together as a glue. And that might be worship, it might be what they find in the Bible, it might be the Word of God, but hopefully it is also the community support that they find as they become a community for one another and helping one another as they go through difficulties and struggles. Now the question comes, what is biblical community? What does the Bible say about community? What can we do when we go to the Bible? Now the Bible nowhere outlines here are the four things you need to do for community. But as we go to the Bible, we find principles we need to draw out of the Bible. My Muslim friends have trouble with this because they're used to going and say, the Quran says this. And we go as Christians and we draw out principles. And so this is what we've learned to do is go to the Bible and say, what are the four biblical descriptions of community? And the four ways that the Bible describes community is it talks about us as a kingdom. It talks about us as we are the bride of Christ. It talks about us and it says we are the ecclesia, which is the church is the word that's been translated. And the Bible also calls us the body. We're the body of Christ. So these are the four descriptions and we need to look at them because whatever we do, whatever we build, it needs to represent the kingdom, the bride, the ecclesia, and the body of Christ and that we need to function together. So everything we do is we build a community of Christ, whether it is uh, close to Islam or farther away from Islam, it must reflect these four principles. So let's begin with the kingdom. The kingdom we find in the New Testament. We find John the Baptist came, and in Matthew 3, the first few verses, he is preaching about the kingdom of God. When Jesus comes, in Mark chapter 1, it says Jesus came preaching the kingdom. And we find even at the end of Jesus' ministry, Matthew 25, he's still, just before he goes to the cross, he's still preaching about the kingdom. And he's giving all these examples about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like this, or the kingdom of God is like that. So Jesus uses this concept of the kingdom. Now, why did he use the kingdom? Is it because that's all the people could understand? I don't think so. Herod the Great, he was a king. But remember, Jesus lived at the time of the Roman Republic. So he could have said, you know, Christianity is more like a republic. Or he had the Arab Nabataean kingdom right next door and they practiced true democracy. Or the Greek states had democracy. So he could say, you know, Christianity is like a democracy. Or he could say, well, look, Christianity is like these nations under a dictator. But Jesus chose the word kingdom. And so there's something about a kingdom that is important for us to grasp as we look at how we as believers relate together. There's that special relationship. And kingdom tells us that God is the king. He has absolute and complete authority. That's what kingdom is all about. The king has authority over his subjects and we the subjects are subject to the king. We must never lose sight of that. This is so important. Jesus is Lord. 
The entire church is subject to him. Every one of us in this church, in this, in this body or this group of people here are subject to Jesus. And so when we meet together, we are coming together as subjects and we come into the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And our relationship to one another is we are fellow subjects in the kingdom of God. None of us is above the other because Jesus is Lord and we are all subject to him and we must come into his presence. And when the community gathers for prayer, we are in God's presence. We're waiting on God. We're listening to him. And as individuals were listening, but corporately were listening because he is the king. Now, Jesus made it plain in his stories that all the subjects in the kingdom have responsibilities. And these vary from person to person. And in some cases, some were given 10 talents, some were given five talents, some were given one talent. We have uh, the one where the king got, brings people in and he, he talks about this is what you are given or you are the steward over the household or so forth. So we have the audit in Matthew 18. We have the householder in Matthew 25. We've got the king who goes off to the far country and leaves the people in charge of the vineyard in Luke 19. All of these kinds of stories tell us that we have responsibility in the kingdom. He is the king, and we have responsibility. So Christian community will not work if we do not recognize, first of all, he is Lord, and second of all, each of us have corporate responsibilities, and they vary from person to person. So if the community refuses, or if someone in the community refuses to do his duty, the whole community struggles and suffers. So when you join a Christian community, we are agreeing to carry out our portion of community. We are agreeing that Jesus is Lord and we will follow what he says for us. So we are not living off of the community, just joining it for what I will get out of it, but I'm joining it also because I will be partaker of this and I will be partaker of community. So that's community, an important concept. Bible has a lot to teach. And you could spend time, and when you have new believers and they want to know about what do Christians do, talk about the kingdom of God and look at those examples. And each of us are stewards. We've been given things in the kingdom. The second one is the bride. And the Bible talks, to, uh, talks about us. We are the bride. Even in the Old Testament, in Hosea chapter 2, God says he's a husband seeking to win back his unfaithful bride. And so when uh, the uh, New Testament comes, it talks to us about the bridegroom. And it talks to us about Messiah as the bridegroom. And we are waiting for the bridegroom to come. And so forth. We find the marriage supper of the Lamb when we get to the book of Revelation. So we find this over and over again. We are the, called the bride of Christ. Now what does this tell us? This adds something to the dimension of the kingship of the Lord and we as servants. It adds into this a loving relationship. We are not just um, subjects of the king. We are called to enter into a loving relationship. And the picture of the bride is the bride is submissive to her husband. And so we are in a place of submission to the Lord in a loving relationship that's based on mutual love and pleasure. Mutual love and pleasure. God has chosen me for his good pleasure. Not just for my pleasure, but I am here for his pleasure. And I bring pleasure to him as well as I may experience pleasure from that relationship and the joy that comes with us. So this is our bond with Jesus and someday we will be eternally present in a biblically-based community in heaven, and it's the ultimate community, heaven is. And the picture when we get there, strong picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb and the bride and the bridegroom. And all of us from our different walks of life, we come into this relationship of the bride and the bridegroom, and we live in that joyful relationship with the Lord in presence with them. The next uh, type of uh, description we get in the Bible is ecclesia. And the Bible refers to us as the ecclesia. And translators have had a hard time with this. 
This simply means assembly or the group. And this is an ancient word. It's been used five centuries before the writing of the New Testament. And it's not necessarily a religious word. And so when the Bible uses the word ecclesia, it means the group. Um, it's, the, it's the lawful assembly, the people who gathered together. You see this in Acts 19. It talks about the assembly. But a few verses later, they use the very same thing in 41 to talk about the mob. There's this mob of people outside, and they call them the ecclesia. So it could be organized. It could be disorganized. It simply means it's a group. So Paul uses this to talk about the group of people that gather together. So it's an assembly. So we as followers of Christ are called to assemble together. So this body that meets is not just individuals wandering around, I'm part of the kingdom and I'm part of this. It's, it's a group of people. It's the word that we get church from. The word church doesn't come from meaning a building. That has slowly come to mean that to us. But it really means that we are part of um, a group of believers. And the Bible assumes that when we meet, we will be part of a community of believers together. And the Bible is not specific in what we're to do. It doesn't tell us this is how you run your meetings. I mean, when you are a Muslim, you are told this is what you do. This is how you pray. You face Mecca. This is what you say now. This is what you say when you touch your face to the ground. This is what you say when you stand up. This is what you say when you look to each of your shoulders and so forth. The Quran is very specific. The Bible isn't. The Bible tells us we should meet together. And it doesn't tell us how this meeting should take place. It doesn't tell us what the focus of our meeting should be. It doesn't uh, even tell us um, what forms we should have in the meeting. It doesn't tell us how often we should meet. In fact, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, it says as often as you do this. So it gives us the freedom to do this. But the best description we can find of community in action is in Acts chapter 2. And it says there that the assembly dedicated themselves to several things. One, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. So this is what the Bible describes the early church as doing. They had the apostles' teaching, they had fellowship with one another, they broke bread together, and they had prayer. And so this characterized their meetings. Notice it says nothing about worship or music. And so this is a freedom that we have. Now, what's the apostles' teaching? This is scripture reading and teaching. So this needs to happen as a group as we meet together. And this was understood to the Jews. In the synagogue, they met and they read. Remember Jesus in the synagogue? He takes the scroll and he opens it up, as his custom was, it says, and he read from it and then he spoke from it. So this was a pattern that was laid down and the people understood that. So the community, as people gather together, it's a place of spiritual nourishment. So the community needs to offer teaching at some place, in some way, to the members of that, uh, who are attending there. It's a place of exhortation, Hebrews 10 tells us. It's a place of edification where we edify one another. This is in 1 Corinthians 14. Edify one another. Encourage one another. And this is what we do as we meet together. And so the focus is on building one another up. It's not that I come to get something out of it. It's I come to give something. A long time ago, uh, we had a, a girl uh, coming to join our organization and uh, one of the things we did was get the, the people who wanted to join involved in a local church, and then that pastor would sit in when we had our acceptance. And they were around for about three months, so we got them involved. And I said, I know a church. I'd like to take you to this church. It's a very interesting church. About half of the church were handicapped people in wheelchairs and so forth. And the other half are either street people or they're just on the edges and margins of society. And I think it's a church you'd enjoy. So I took her to this church. And she was there, and she saw the service. And as we were driving home afterwards, I said, what did you think of the service? And she looked at me with disgust, and she said, I got nothing out of that service. And I was just shocked. I said, that's not why I took you there. I didn't take you there so you would get something out of it. You want to be a missionary. You want to you know, be, you know, be a Christian worker. You need to think, what can I put into that church. I took you to that church because there are so many places you could get involved and put, uh, put into that fellowship. It's not what you get out of it. It's what you put into it. Many of our people go to church, unfortunately, and they talk about what I got out of it. 
And that's not what community is all about. The question is, what do you put into it? And so it's a place of edification, of encouragement, a place of service. And everyone should participate and everyone should be involved. It's a place of breaking of bread. And so the community comes together. And the one thing we're told that we are to do as a community is to break bread together. Now, baptism is a public thing that happens once, but breaking of bread, it happens all of the time. And this is that a serious time as we come together and we look at um, our lives and we focus on our relationship with God. And it tells us this is a time when we can talk about forgiveness and we need to be in correct relationship with God. I need to be in correct relationship with my brother and then I can partake of the bread. So it is one of those correcting actions in the community. It continually draws us back to the cross, draws us back to the place of Christ, and makes sure that I am in proper relationship with one another. It is also a house of prayer. Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. And in the early uh, church, people met for prayer. Peter gets out of jail. Where does he go? He goes to where there's a prayer meeting. People were together praying. So it's a corporate place of prayer, and they meet together to pray together. So the body is a kingdom. The body is a, um, as the bride. It is the ecclesia. But the body is also um, the body of Christ, this group of people. So the one we want to look at now is it talks about a body. And Paul talks about this, and he introduces us to the concept of the body. And he says this group of people are the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And this is unique to Christianity. The other religions don't have this. We are part of the body of Christ. Now, it's a very strange term. You would never say that communists are the body of Karl Marx. It just sounds strange. Would you say that Microsoft employees are the body of Bill Gates? No. You wouldn't say that. So what does this mean when it says Christians are part of the body of Christ? You see how strange it sounds? We get so used to this term, but it really is a very strange sounding term. Now there are two aspects to the body that are drawn to us. And the first one is the body parts. And so Paul says, well, some of us are different members. Some of us are eyes. Some of us are ears or nose. Some of us are hands or feet. So this reinforces that stewardship part. God gives us all different parts of the body. And um, Colossians tells us that none of us is greater than the other. Each of us has our responsibility. So it reminds us that we're all part of the body of Christ. So that's the first aspect. The second aspect is one that we seldom think about. We are part of the body of Christ. They could have just said we are part of the body of believers and we could still have all the various parts. You know, the president and the secretary and the treasurer and parts of the body of an organization. But it says we are part of the body of Christ. What a strange term. The body of Christ. I like to think that when we meet together as a group, as a body of Christ, that it is as if he is present in our midst. Jesus said, I'm going away, but I'm sending you a comforter. The Holy Spirit is in each one of us. He's gifted each one of us differently, given us different roles, given us different responsibilities. So when we meet together, we are the body of Christ. You see, Jesus took his ministry, and he had, he had discernment. He could discern the woman at the well, and he says, I will take that part of my ministry, and I will give it to you. And he said, I will take this part of my ministry, maybe showing mercy, and I will give it to you. And I will take this part of my ministry of teaching, and I will give it to you. And so all of what Jesus did, he split up amongst the body of Christ. So really, when people go around and say, you should be like Jesus, there's no way I can be like Jesus. I can't teach like him. I can't do the miracles like he did. I can't do all this. And I'm not expected to. The, body, uh, the Bible doesn't expect me to do everything that Jesus did. But it does say that when we are part of the body of believers, Jesus is in our midst. And I believe that we as churches together are expected to do everything Jesus did because the gifts are all available to us. Now, do you get a gift once, forever, and for always? This is a challenge, and I don't think so. I have noticed that when I am out in an isolated area, and there's only a few of us believers that are there, 
that all of the spiritual gifts are available to us because we are gifted as He wills, it says. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts as He wills. He might give me a gift that's for all of my life, but when I'm in a particular situation, He can gift me as is needed. And when five of us are out in the desert and while we're out there living and we're trying to witness for Christ, we are the body of Christ to those people. When they look, they can't see Jesus, but they can see him in us. And not just in us individually, they see Jesus in us corporately as they look at us and see how we worship together, how we live together, how we love one another, how we support one another. They see Jesus and they are attracted to Jesus. Now, people may be attracted to the Jesus they see in the messenger, but they need to be attracted to the Jesus that they see in the message. They must be attracted to the Jesus they see in the community. And as that community lives and moves together, we have spiritual gifts, and we are the body of Christ ministering together. And Jesus said an amazing verse. He said, when I leave here, he said, greater works will you do than I've done. And I go around and ask people, have you ever done greater works than Jesus? I have not found a single believer yet who's ever done greater works than Jesus. But I want to tell you something. We are doing greater works than Jesus because Jesus was limited in his body to walk around a little area, not very often, not very many miles from his hometown as he ministered to people. But now Jesus is alive and well. He's alive and well in Brazil. He's alive and well in America. He's alive and well in the Philippines. He's alive and well in Canada. He's alive and well in Muslim countries. Wherever the body meets together, Jesus is there and he's present. And so we are doing greater works than he did because we have taken the body of Jesus and we are present all over the world. So this is an important concept that we have to grasp, that the biblical community is built up of the kingdom of the bride of the ecclesia, and of the body. Now there's one more biblical principle we want to cover before um, we can understand how communities should operate. And that is the principle of others. This is a term that comes up all the time in our Bible. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? We are to love others. The early church loved others. And so um, the Bible tells us that uh, they, they took their possessions and they sold of them and they distributed them to those people who had need. And it tells us that they came in and they brought them and laid them at the disciples' feet and they were distributed out. And then it tells us about, um, in uh, Acts chapter 4, about this uh, Levite whose name was Barnabas from Cyprus. And he sold a field and he brought the money and laid it at the disciples' feet. It makes a special case about him. And so you have this early church. In Acts chapter 6, we find out that uh, we learn that there was this daily distribution of food to the widows who were there and so forth. So they were involved with others. They had taken seriously the whole thing that it says about others. Now, the early church was practicing something about others, but this was community. It wasn't communism. And sometimes we get mixed up in the word between community and commune. Commune is where you share everything in common, but this is community and action. What is obvious is that they were sharing some of their goods, not all of their goods. Because a few chapters later, Peter's in prison and he gets out and he goes to a home and it's a home of uh, Mary, the mother of, of, uh, of John's house. So she hadn't sold her house. She was still in her house because they met daily in homes. So they were selling their extra goods. And so here you have this guy who, uh, this man who sells, uh, Joseph of Cyprus, who sells his field. And so this is something noble, particularly noble gesture when he brings the money there. They didn't sell all of their lands and all of their fields. And so it is that when Muslims read the book of Acts, they become excited with the powerful demonstration of community. And they look at that and they get excited and they get excited. But when they look at the community that's being offered and practiced by Christians, sometimes they want to go back into Islam. Now Titus 1 and uh, verse 8 tells us that ministers should be lovers of hospitality. Does this describe your minister? 
This is, says our ministers should be those who love others and have people in our homes. Today, when we choose ministers, we like to choose people who are preach the word and people can, can open up and share and teach and so forth. But the question that, that Titus brings up is, are they lovers of hospitality? Thinking of others rather than themselves. And so the Bible is full of this. Think not on your own thing. Think on the things of others and look unto others and uh, uh, so forth. Love one another with affection. And so some of us, um, we need to be aware of, of uh, a new awareness of others and how important others are in our lives. The whole book of Philippians is about others. And Paul says, look at, uh, he said, uh, I said, I'm here for others in the first chapter. And he said, he said no, don't look on your own things, but look on the things of others. And he used all kinds of, of, of illustrations. He said, Onesimus is here, and he was sick, but he didn't want to tell you because he was afraid of, that you would be worried about him. So he didn't tell you he was sick. He was sick nigh unto death, but he was thinking of others. And it, all the way through the book of Philippians, he keeps talking about thinking about others. This is an important concept that often we fail to recognize. If we are going to have Christian community, this is a community of believers that must think about others, not themselves. And so we need to build communities that will support others. And when new people come, they're welcomed and people are interested in them. People are concerned with them because they are thinking of others, not of themselves. So the biblical principles, just in review, is we must have uh, communities which are kingdoms where God is clearly in control and recognized as the leader and that we are servants and subject to him. And then we need to have uh, recognized with the bride and that worship relationship, that love relationship. It's not a hard, cold, he's the sultan looking down from heaven. There's that loving relationship with God. And then there is the, uh, the ecclesia. We meet together. We are a group of people that belong together with one another, support one another. And then we are the body, and each of us have a role. And when we play our role, Christ is alive in our midst, and he's ministering to people. And finally, we must be focused on others. So this is what the Bible tells us. The question then becomes, if we have this community, how can we encourage people then to move from their community and to join our community whether it's close to Islam or far away from Islam, the question is still the same. There are steps that people go through as they move out of one community and move into another community of faith. And that's our next lesson.